This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to A Word with Tom Merritt. I'm Tom Merritt, and on this show, I have the pleasure and privilege to sit down with some of the smartest, most interesting people in the world and talk about how we think, because there is no way all of us can know every single thing. So how we make our shortcuts that get us through life is very important. It's always good to compare notes on how we do that. These are the kinds of conversations that are my favorite. I've had them all my life with my grandpa Carl in his front room, my grandma Roxy in her front room. I got lots of different ways of looking at the world, great conversations, and it was all leading me up to this moment right now. Welcome into the front room, Natalia Antalava. Thanks for having me. Hi. Uh, so, Natalia, you are a – would you describe yourself as a journalist? Uh, yes, I hope so. Still, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Some journalists don't, so I'm always careful. So, no, very yeah. much describe myself as a yeah. journalist. Yeah. And, and you've had an interesting journey. You've, you've worked for major publications, major networks, uh, and you've struck out on your own. Can, can you give us sort of the, the summary version of your journey? Sure. Um, I guess I should start by saying that I come from Georgia, but um, the other Georgia, the country, not the state. And I was born in a country that no longer exists, which was the Soviet Union, but I caught the tail end of it. Always knew that I wanted to be a journalist and ended up sort of maneuvering my way into the BBC and found myself um at age sort of 19 in West Africa, uh, freelancing for BBC African Service. And then, um, you know, it kind of snowballed from that. Uh, one assignment led to another, to another. Uh, I just about managed to finish university um, and I just dived straight into reporting and into work and ended up having this, you know, incredible career with the BBC living and working in all sorts of places, um, finding myself in the jungle in Burma one day, in Tehran, and the next having tea with Hezbollah or, you know, meeting presidents of some of the world's most reclusive regimes. It was it was really, really fun. Until one day, you know, like so many of us, I guess, I woke up and thought to myself, is there any point to what I do in life? And how can we do it better? So I started trying to figure out what were the weak points of journalists and where it was that we failed. And I, you know, basically built from my own frustrations at the time because it did feel like, you know, I was just constantly adding to all of the noise um, that was happening around us instead of, you know, just the news machine all of a sudden seemed like this like noisy thing that was just generating loads and loads of noise and, and the it internet was no longer it, right yeah uh, and the internet absolutely fueled it yeah the space you know this infinite space for constant updates the insatiable appetite the bottomless pit and all of us just throwing all this information out there so what i really what really drove me to leave the mainstream media and set up on my own uh not on my own with with a, I have a co-founder at Coda Story but what really drove um me personally was a quest for 
you know, the, the question of like, how do we actually bring context and continuity to coverage of these major issues? Because so many times when you're on the receiving end of uh, a newscast, you know, you feel like things have just come out of the blue, but nothing ever comes out of the blue, right? That there is context to everything. So how can we as journalists bring that context in our stories, but also in the process of creating journalism? And how do we create a newsroom that really works to bring, to connect those dots, to bring the context and continuity to to these big stories. So that's what we wanted to figure out. Uh, myself and a friend turned co-founder, turned business partner, still a friend. Um, and that's the journey we started on about six years ago now. And um, that's how Coda Story, the nonprofit newsroom that we run, that's how it kind of was born into the world. One of the things uh, that, that you shed light on, among many, many things that you shed light on there, is the ability to suss out what is valid information and what is not, what is useful information and what is not. It's, it's something that I think, especially people who aren't growing up with the massive use of the internet uh, post-smartphone uh, struggle with. We used to have a couple of sources, maybe a daily newspaper, you know, maybe a couple of, of national networks. Uh, so it was easy to see where the news was coming from. That didn't mean that it was always reliable either, but at least you had you had fewer sources to try to keep track of. Now you have endless sources of information, which is why I wanted our word to be manipulation. What does that word mean to you? It means what the powerful do to those who have less power. And that applies to everyone. That probably applies to me and you. Uh, it applies to children. Those of us who have children know how well they can manipulate uh, the powers that they have over their parents and um, vice versa. And it applies on big sort of scale to, to governments, um, you know, geopolitics, obviously, as well. So it's everywhere. And the digital uh, space, the digital era has definitely changed the the nature of manipulation. It's given power. I think it's given power to more people at the start. And then I think uh, those who have held power traditionally have managed to get a lot of it back and suddenly ended up with, with more power than the, to manipulate they've ever had before. Um, you know, and right now I'm thinking about troll farms and, mm -hmm. you know, the, the mass manipulation of the public opinion that we're seeing across the board in all countries um, and so on. So um, I think manipulation is part of life. Uh, it always has been, but it takes new shapes and forms in the digital age. And I think it's important to be aware of them. Yeah, ma manipulation at scale, so to speak. Where, you right. know, it's different when your child is manipulating you uh, to, to get something they want versus uh, the entire, you know, troll farm uh, times 10 uh, out there spraying information around the Internet, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. And I think, of course, the most powerful sort of manipulation is the kind that happens when you don't even realize that it's happening and the way that your opinions are shaped um, and the way your worldview is shaped without fully realizing that it is being manipulated um, to someone else's benefit. And um, I think that we are seeing newer forms of that sort of manipulation than we've ever seen before. It is interesting, and you, you kind of touched on this a minute ago, that more people than ever have more power to manipulate, and yet we still find it being centralized. 
what do you think has allowed that? Uh, the you know the early hope of the internet was that decentralization would would prevent that from happening. I I think partially we got the internet wrong, uh, and I think in getting internet wrong, we somewhat maybe got the human nature wrong as well. Maybe we were more idealistic about it um, than we should have been. Uh, maybe I should just be saying that about myself, but that's <laughs> certainly what I think. Um, you know, I definitely remember remember the time when you know tech held the promise of um, more freedom, more openness, kind of a brighter future, a place where. You know, everything, everything was possible. And um, actually, the time when I started thinking of sort of leaving mainstream journalism and my reporting career and doing things differently was the time around the Arab Spring, the string of popular uprisings and revolutions that really starting from Tunisia and then on, you know, and so then I spent a lot of time in Yemen at the time covering the Arab Spring in the Yemen Spring, you know, mm -hmm. the uprising there. And, you know, there was a tremendous sense of hope and um, social media and internet in general, but social media in particular, played an enormous role in creating that hope and giving people that hope um, and mobilizing them and allowing them to sort of um, find a find a new voice in political systems that were run by dictators for decades and decades. And it was, it felt truly revolutionary and it felt like a beginning of a new era, except I think the dictators woke up to it pretty mm. quickly. And um, I think, you know, they, they, they came to their senses. And ever since then, you know, we just launched a new podcast, which is called Tech Tyrants and Us, in which we explore this very question. We basically went around the world kind of trying to figure out, is tech ultimately serving democracies or dictators? You know, whose side is tech on? You know, obviously the argument goes tech is on no one's side, but I'm not so sure that is true either anymore. And um, I think it's uh, it's definitely as authoritarianism rises around the world, we are seeing more and more evidence that it's it's dictators that benefit from innovations in tech. Many of these innovations coming, of course, from the Silicon Valley. Mm. Do you do you think it's a cycle? Uh, that or do you think uh, this time it's different? I, I'm thinking of the fact that you know whenever we have a new media, even from as far back as the printing press, but certainly radio and television, uh, you see authoritarians rise and take advantage of that, uh, and it takes a while for people to sort of learn how that works and push against it. Uh, so far, we've been able to push against it uh, most of the time. Do you think this time is different? I mean, it's a million dollar question. Let yeah, me get yeah. my crystal ball. Um, it's a question that lots of people are trying to figure uh, out an answer for. I think it's a little bit of both. And of course, we've seen the moral panic has happened before. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the advent of radio was a really good example, right? We've all worried about these new platforms um, before. But I think what's happening to societies at large today is very different because it's happening at such massive scale. And also because they very foundation on which so many societies are built, which is like that kind of consensus around facts and truth that seems to have eroded to level that has not happened before. You know, we can't agree 
on very, very basic things. You know, white is white and black is black and the world can be presented to you as completely upside down and there will be people who will believe in it. And we've seen, you know, this rises of like uh, new conspiracy theories, you know, whether it's anti-5G or QAnon or, you know, take your pick. There's so many. Um, and of course, they've existed before, but they have never penetrated through societies with the effectiveness that they have more, in more recent years just because of the sheer reach, right? Like you find them everywhere. You find them on Reddit. You find them on Facebook. You find them. It's just everything spreads like wildfire. Adding to the problem is the fact that that is a fixable fact. Like that, mm-hmm. that, that is something that can be fixed. But adding to the, to this, um, you know, very fast spread is the fact that the infrastructure of the modern internet and social media platforms are built to spread the lies rather than facts, right? It's much easier for fake news to spread on social media or for anything clickbaity, juicy, mm-hmm. uh, or, or fake to spread on social media than any quote-unquote good information. So that doesn't help the problem. Yeah, I, th- I think about it as, as sort of a, a one-way fan, uh, if you will. It just accelerates the spread in one direction, and it doesn't do much to to stop it going the other way. That's right. That's uh, right. Absolutely. It's a good I, analogy. When, when I was young, uh, my uncle uh, brought me a pamphlet about how President Carter was the Antichrist. Uh, the, the literal, you know, the pamphlet uh, alleged that. Uh, and... I always think back to that because that is exactly the kind of thing, the tenor of the thing that you're that you're talking about that spreads on social media. And yet there was a break on him being able to do that. He could only show that to as many people as he could print copies and get to, you know, and I had a car. He didn't have to walk, uh, but there was a limit to how far that would spread. And there was a slowness to it that allowed my dad to step in and go, yeah, my dad was a Republican, but he he was like, don't pay too much attention to that stuff. It's the speed and the acceleration, I think, that makes it hard for people to deal with it in ways that they would have dealt with before. Do you see when when you're covering this, which I, I know you do very closely, do you see any efforts that seem hopeful or, or seem possible to kind of help put speed bumps in the way or help people to deal with it? Before I answer that, I also want to add that it's not just the speed. Mm. It's also the fact that, you know, when you were young and you got that pamphlet, I think there was a lot more room for discussion and conversation mm-hmm. than there is today. Um, because if you think about how social media platforms are built and the way that they lock us more and more into our filter bubbles, I remember, uh, you know, for this podcast that uh, we did for Undercurrents, Tech Tyrants and Us, we did a, a story about Thailand, you know, in Thailand, um, monarchy, the royal family has always been a massive taboo subject. And in this, so we did this like, long story about what the role that Facebook plays in in lives of regular citizens of Thailand. And we had a Thai academic who gave us this example of how during the big protests, when the whole country was divided between, I don't know if your your listeners recall that, there were these big protests and there were, it's kind of the shorthand for them was the red shirts and yellow shirts. And, mm-hmm. you know, one camp supported the monarchy and the other camp supported the uh, elected government. But that's the detail. The point was that she, this, this Thai woman whom we interviewed was saying that up until that point, 
you know, you could go on Facebook, even though you went to the protests and you were with your camp, you went on Facebook and you saw, you know, what people from the other camp were saying until the day when Facebook decided to change their algorithm. Mm. And the only thing that you could see on your timeline after that was the stuff that you engaged in. So if your cousin posted something that you didn't like and you didn't like it and you didn't share it, but you read it and it was interesting for you to hear your cousins or your friends or someone's point of view, you no longer saw that. And I think it's a quite a scary thing of how, you know, now obviously it affected Thailand, but it affected so many other societies and corners of the world um, in ways that are almost impossible to measure, right? Because so much of the social discourse happens on social media today. And I think it's that locking groups up in these filter bubbles and making the conversation impossible, a debate, a discourse impossible is is really, really dangerous. And um, now I've completely forgotten what the <laughs> no, question no, that, was. That leads right up to like, so what do you do? That that was basically my question. Is, is is there anything you see that says, ah, but that that won't hold forever? Here is a new situation. There's there's this startup called Artifact that's that's trying to do TikTok for news, but curate the sources. There's you know popularity of other types of platforms. Uh, I know you covered Be Real recently, and some of the privacy concerns are around that. Uh, so, is there anything you're seeing that says there's promise there to help people deal with all this? First of all, I think we still lack the basic language to describe the problems that we have. Mm. We're still using really outdated language to talk about, you know, the new issues that are being brought up by this advances in in tech and changes to information ecosystems that we live in. Mm. Um, And it seems to me that increasingly the consensus is that if we were truly wanted to address it, we can't really address it without regulating, that we would never let broadcasters on air without regulating them. We would never let, you know, telecom companies, right? Like you regulate, you regulate these mm-hmm. big companies that have an effect on the public discourse and on public life. And there is just it makes no sense not to regulate platforms. And I think that's increasingly the consensus. I think we still don't fully understand the, um, I mean, we've come a long way, even a couple of years ago, I think compared to our understanding of what tech was doing to society two years ago has advanced so much today. But I still, I still think we're, um, it's, it's a hard problem for people to fully grasp. We're still not completely understanding the extent to which tech and the way we use tech is changing the societies. Uh, that we live in. And that was in a way, you know, our attempt was like, okay, can we find just like very, very human stories that really show how, you know, tech plays into into a drama of living a life and yeah, yeah. like how, like, w- like what happens with it. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't mean to be coming across as anti-tech. I'm not at all. And, uh, you know, you wouldn't uh, be able to have me give up on any of the wonders. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, But I think, um, I, I think the urgency of addressing it is very real because I think it is, it is the human cost of, uh, of neglect is a lot higher than we think. I, I really like what you said about not having the language to discuss it. There, there's a whole vocabulary being built 
uh, around this sort of thing. And what one person means uh, sometimes varies than what another person means when, when just talking about social media uh, and, and manipulation and, and, and facts and, and all of that. Uh, I, I tend to wonder, this is a theory, not a belief. Uh, if what's happening is we're, we are having to untrain ourselves. And this is why I think uh, those growing up with social media always in their life probably have a little, little more advantage on us. We're, we're untraining ourselves to a, sort of a default belief that, you know, oh, if I see it in print, there's a certain amount of credibility behind it. Not 100%, uh, but I, we're more willing to believe it because we read it. Uh, even though we know intellectually that we shouldn't, uh, there's just kind of a built-in habit from having grown up in a different era without the internet and without social media. And I, I say that because I, I have conversations with people. And they'll say, yeah, I saw this thing on Twitter. I saw this thing on Facebook. I'm like, well, who said it? And they're like, well, I don't know, but it's all yeah. over the place. And, and it's yeah. like, yeah, but you're doing the thing Every, you were just criticizing yeah, yeah. moments ago. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so I think we're just, it's a, it's a habit that we need to unlearn. Uh, yeah, like, I mean, as, uh, go, it, that goes straight back to the world, to, to the word you picked, which is manipulation. I mean, it is incredible to think about, you know, how easy in some ways it is to manipulate quite intelligent, you know, otherwise, like, absolutely intelligent people. How, how like, what little effort uh, it takes. And, you know, I'm someone who follows very closely the war that is happening in Ukraine, and I follow very closely what's happening in Russia. And, you know, you can't find a better example of collective manipulation than what's, what's happened um and Vladimir Putin's Russia, where he has managed by using social media, but also traditional television and broadcast, he has managed to um, make the entire nation or I, I, I certainly the biggest part of the nation believe that he's fighting a just war mm -hmm. and that, you know, the West is um, about to bomb Moscow if they don't uh, fight it or that, you know, the Ukraine is full of uh, neo-Nazis who and so on. And, you know, I can go yeah, on yeah, listing yeah. the lies, but people genuinely believe that stuff because um, they've been exposed to it um, a lot. And that's where you know, the reach of social media and the manipulation and the networks that some of the authoritarians have built uh, using the social media um, is to to spread to spread quite you know uniform messages. It was extraordinary. For example, during COVID, we noticed our in our newsroom we noticed very clearly how you know the the messaging about COVID of Russian Chinese and um, uh, Iranian state news outlets was completely in sync. And you would get, and, and these are not just state, state outlets that are, you know, running their Facebook pages. No, no, this is also like a network of hundreds of thousands of people who may not even, who are just picking it up. And in Chinese whispers, it just mm -hmm. spreads, you know, across the internet and it's repeated in the, you know, how does the old saying go? A lie repeated in, a thousand times becomes truth. Um, and slowly all of that, you know, and they, the goal of the goal of that sort of manipulation and disinformation is not necessarily to convince you of mm. one thing or the other. It's really just to undermine your belief in, in the truth. And once you take the truth away, there is no really shared 
value, like that collective the consensus. And yeah. once you take the consensus away, then what happens to the society? So it's pretty scary stuff. I, I feel like it's as big, if not bigger of a win to get someone to stop caring what's true than it is to convince them that something is not true. I would argue it's a bigger win. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Yeah. Um, so what do we do? I, and I, I don't expect you to, to have the answer, uh, or, or I think, you, I think <laughs> it would have been impossible to get you on this show because you'd be in such demand uh, to help everybody fix it. <laughs> but uh, based on your experience and, and what you think, it, for a user of social media, what are signs that people can look for that, that maybe they're being manipulated? And, and what should they do about it? Uh, do you just abandon platforms? Do you curate who you follow? Do you, do you, do you have any good advice for folks? Um, I think my advice is to be a bit of a journalist about it and look at everything with a little like healthy dose of skepticism and figure out where it comes from. I mean, very basic social media hygiene, actually, information hygiene, right? Um, check the sources, see if there are more than two sources uh, on something. Don't repeat it. Don't retweet it. Don't share it unless you're sure that it's true and figure out who, like, what's the, what's the agenda of whoever it is um, that's spreading a piece of information that you might be interested in. Not really, you know, not rocket science. It's basic stuff, but it's stuff that we, it, it requires a little bit of work. You know, it's a lot easier to scroll mindlessly through your timeline. I'm guilty as charged. I do that too. But, uh, when it comes to information, you know, all we like, you know, it's funny. Sometimes my advice to a lot of people, sometimes all we need to do is to think. <laughs> You know, to <laughs> to use the weapon that we have, I don't know. our brain. Yeah, it sounds like work. Just, I, that it does. It is work. It is work. Uh, then, it, yeah. If you're not willing to do it, then you should be ready to be manipulated. Yeah, I I, I wish there was an easier answer, and and I hope someday there there will be. But I think you're right, and and maybe if you if you if I were to boil it down, tell me if if you think this is is dangerous is. Uh, you can read everything, but before you believe it, before you insert it into your mind, take a second look. Don't share anything before you're sure. And if you don't want to be sure, then then just skip on past it. it. The danger there is that you're still being exposed to it, I suppose. Yeah, and there's very little that we're going to be able to do about being exposed to it. And look, I mean... Um, uh, yeah, I have no answers to being exposed to it. I mean, again, I think some regulation of platforms is absolutely essential and it has to happen. And the debate needs to take place. Um, I think 
we need more coverage of the human cost of the lack of the regulation as well. I think we need to understand what actually happens. I think in the US, um, where a lot of this technology comes from, not not anymore, you know, I mean, that was another truism that turned out to be a you know, completely not true was the fact that, well, China would never catch up because they would never have the kind of creativity that they have in Silicon Valley. Well, Mm. everyone's on TikTok today. And guess what? (laughs) You know, it's the Chinese. So and just the awareness, you know, I I was just looking into a very popular um, health app that is um, what no one and it's on you know, it's on the all of the major platforms. It's on all of the app stores, and it's on Google Play. It's on um, the Apple Store, um, and uh, you know, it, it does very well. It's run by an incredibly dodgy group of people out of Russia uh, who are hoovering up data of mm. millions of people around the world. Uh, what happens to that data? What are they going to do to with it? You know, uh, because data is something that. Everyone wants these days. So there, I think, I think we start as with everything else in life. We start with awareness and start with the awareness that the problem exists. And that's the first, but a very important step. Yeah. When you talk about rules and regulations, uh, the one thing that I wish people talked about more is the idea that if Facebook, Meta, Alphabet, Google had their preference. And one of the reasons you see them preferring regulations, they would like those rules to be written in a way that keeps out competitors. And so it's not that you don't need the rules, but my preference is that the rules be written in a way that they will not preference the incumbent. Uh, And my head usually goes to rules that give you more control over your data. Uh, so, so don't say, uh, well, a company has to spend all this money to, to safeguard the data, uh, maybe fund a situation or a few situations like solid that Tim Berners-Lee, uh, is, is developing or something like that, that says you now control your data. And then these are rules about what they have to tell you when they ask for your data. I'm, I, I feel that is a better way to go than some of the rules I've seen where I'm like, you know, this isn't bad, but. If I'm Facebook, it's easy for me to comply with because I've got billions of dollars, uh, and and, right. and it's not that I that I don't know that that solves the problem. Do, you, do what are some holes in that theory? Yeah, no, I think um, I think more and more people are turning towards decentralized internet as the way of circumventing a lot of these issues and problems, and I think it has a very good chance of taking off. It's not as convenient, right? The the power of Facebook, you know, like look at, you know, a lot of people have migrated to Mastodon for once Elon Musk took over Twitter, but a lot of people are still finding it a little bit just, just mm-hmm. not quite as smooth and just not quite as easy. So the product has to be good, right? And it's hard to make a good product when, you know, you don't have as much, as much kind of resources as, as the big, as the big guys. But, uh, but I think there is definitely a tendency. I think there is also younger generations are just naturally more skeptical of the big tech and big platforms from what I'm seeing in general, uh, whether that is something that they stick with as they get older or uh, not is something that we'll need to wait and see. Um, but, um, you know, there's a lot less interest in people sort of joining some of, some of the old platforms. But, you know, I think uh, there's still so much that we don't know, right, about the platforms that are at, like, what do we know about TikTok? What do we really know? 
well, what we, happens. Yeah, we we know more about TikTok than we do about even uh, Be Real or something like that. Simply because that's right, it's and then there is that. Yeah, yeah. and, then and there there's is so that. many new things coming up. You know, how much do we really know about something like Hive or Post or or any of those? That's right. Yeah, that's right. And uh, keeping up. Um, Keeping up with, uh, especially for policymakers and regulators, is a real struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one area of hope that I cling to is that these platforms are not forever. They seem forever. They seem, you know, unassailable because they are so huge. But, you know, everything is forever until the moment it is not. Uh, and, you know, the Berlin Wall being one of the greatest historical examples uh, of that. Uh, those are exceptions, not the rule. But Facebook, as you just pointed out, is isn't convincing the, the younger audience to keep coming. So it's not like it's going to go away tomorrow, but its influence is starting to wane. It is starting to look a little more like Yahoo to me. Uh, and I feel like we could be in a situation where Facebook, by the time everybody regulates it, is no longer re- as relevant as it was when the process began. Yeah, but it's also a question of what they are being replaced with, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if if instead of um, Facebook with its opaque uh, policies and rules and laws, we have um, uh, TikTok with even more opaque policies and, mm-hmm. and rules and laws and weird content management and uh, monitoring system and so on. I mean, then like, is this really progress for, you know, people who are worried about the effect of tech on the quality of, you know, democratic debate in the society? Arguably not. I mean, ultimately, we haven't come up, none of these platforms offer a place where a fair debate can take place. Yeah. Right. None of them. None of them can can kind of host a, a fair a fair debate, and yeah, that the, is the motivation right there for that. that that's no, not because they've got a, they've, yeah. they're making they've got their business models yeah. and they're making money, and that, that a, a debate is not what's going to make them money. So it's a very um, it's a very tricky. Yeah. Uh, the, an argument makes them money. A debate does not make them money. Correct. Um, that's yeah. right. Exactly. I I that's that's why I go back to that idea of I I think. Regulate rules and regulations around platforms are as important, if not more important, than than rules targeted at particular companies or sets of companies, because it addresses that future need of like, all right, let's do our best to prevent manipulation by any future platforms. At least that that's my hope. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's not. It can't be about individual companies, or it has to be the combination of both. Mm-hmm. But it has to be about like reframing the way we think about um, that sort of manipulation of information, you know. And a lot of uh, a lot of the reaction to this day is very. You know, I always think it's very reactive. Like it's all about like uh, there are all these people who talk about countering disinformation. It's mm-hmm. about you know counter fighting disinformation and fighting this and fighting that. And that's ultimately a very reactive. Um, it, it puts you into a defensive position, so you're always following someone else's agenda. Ultimately, right? Um, so it's about creating this sp- a regulatory space in which 
you can restructure the way that the conversation takes place um, rather than, you know, try to kind of fight back to the individual pieces of information or individual platforms or individual companies. And, and going back to what, what you were saying earlier uh, about, you know, people need to think they need to take time and, and, and look at, at what they're believing and what they're reading. You know, do you think there's a role for education for for teaching people literacy in, in in how to avoid manipulation oh god massively i think so i think so and there are examples in the world that provide a really great pathway to it as well i mean in scandinavia media literacy classes start from you know age six um they just um it's it's basic critical thinking right it's it's just giving kids a habit to think hard about the information that competes for their attention and whether it's worth it or not um others have done it successfully um so um, so it's not like you have to completely you know reinvent the wheel so uh, yeah and i think a lot of the answers are Sadly, not necessarily in journalism, sadly for me, not anyone else, sadly not necessarily in journalism that plays an important role and has to play a more, you know, a bigger role, I think. But uh, I think a lot of the answers are in education and starting very early and then getting people to getting young people to think differently about the way that they consume information. And I think, you know, from what I am saying, I think they are doing it a little bit themselves, almost as a, you know, way of protecting themselves. Uh -huh. yeah. um, I, I, I see a lot more kids tend to be quite wise about the information that they consume, um, sometimes a lot wiser than the grown-ups. But I think giving it a structure and making it a priority on, on a bigger level, I think would make a difference because we, were, we will never, this, this tsunami of information, you know, good, bad, whatever, the noise is not going to end, right? It may be Facebook today and something else tomorrow, but the tsunami is not going to go away. Yeah. Like the, the, that volume is not going to shrink. So we all need to figure out how to live um, constructively in the, you know, in the world that is very, very noisy and how, how to, how to talk to each other. Because essentially, I think what what social media has done, instead of giving people a better platform for having a debate, it has taken away the public square, right? Mm -hmm. It has taken away that space where everyone could come out and be, you know, whether you're a king or, a, you know, or a king or a shopkeeper in that square, you have the equal voice and the equal right. I, I wonder if, if TV... Uh, did that first, and social networks and, and technology platforms have extended it. Uh, sometimes I wonder if we're not ignoring the fact that TV is still massively popular and a massive propaganda machine, and not that we shouldn't be looking at the social network effect, but sometimes we look at it at the exclusion of this big engine that's still rolling along. You know, I think I would not even say TV. I, I think it started with television. Mm. Um, and then I think with the um, advances um, in the internet advances, it became all of the news industry in general. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the problem is not so much television as it is. It's the, it's the idea of a 24 hour news cycle. Um, that idea is 
uh, it's bullshit. There, there is not enough news to fill a 24-hour news cycle. Maybe on a day like today when there is a massive earthquake in Turkey sure. and yeah. people need to be broadcasting constantly because like this is information that can save lives. There are exceptions for sure. But most of the time, 24-hour news channels or or any any you know, news industry, because everything now, to, I mean, a newspaper reporters also have to file constantly now as well, because they're also filling that same bottomless pit, right? And it's we're living in this culture of like constant updates. Um, uh, it just doesn't, it, there's just not enough of it to fill mm -hmm. the, to fill that, to fill the 24 hours. So what are we doing? Why are we doing that? Why are we not looking for stories that are important that actually tell us something about, uh, the world that we live in that can make a difference and have an impact. And instead, we're, you know, put ourselves into front of microphones and cameras and basically regurgitate the like, same thing that everyone else has kind of heard and, you know, entertain along the way so that more people tune in and have better looking presenters. So, or have, you know, like louder presenters mm -hmm. so that more people look at us, even though we are, basically saying the same thing that everyone else is saying or just putting another like bits of spin on it so that more attention comes to us. So yes, absolutely. I think, I think the news industry as a whole, and I think increasingly, um, I see a better and, you know, I'm a little bit cautious of saying that because I come from the news culture mm. and I have many, many colleagues and friends who work uh, in news and I think and do tremendous job and are absolutely, you know, amazing journalists and wonderful people. Um, but I do increasingly see the difference between uh, journalism, distinction between journalism and news. Um, and I think it will become an increasingly important distinction. I think that goes back to our media literacy where we, we sort of focused on, on young folks. And, and as you said, they, they, may be better at this already than the people teaching them. Uh, it's probably people my age and older that need the media literacy training to, to tell them. And I've told this to my father-in-law, uh, that's entertainment that you're watching. That's not news. There, there is such a thing as news, but, but when you're watching those 24 seven channels that are, that are pumping you up about that topic that you're, you know, really excited about that's entertainment. And just, just be aware of that. You know, I tell them like, Hey, enjoy yourself, watch it, whatever. But, but don't use it as news. Uh, do you think that's a kind of message that needs to get out there more? Um, yeah, but unless you offer people an alternative, they're not going to, they're, they're uh -huh. telling them that is not going to help, is sure. it? And I think what provided an alternative to a lot of people for a long time were local news, you know, news that were tailored to you, to your interests, to your community, to things that you wanted to know. Things about. you can have an impact on. Yeah. The things that you can have an impact on and things that have impact on your life. Um, and that, um, is another kind of a silent victim of not such a silent victim, but totally a victim of uh, technological advances and advertising or uh, digital advertising and on and on and on. Right. So the local news is dead, but we need alternatives to these things. And I think a lot of people are working on alternatives. I think there is a very, in the US especially, there is a really inspiring cohort of uh, nonprofit newsrooms that are trying really hard to 
you know, do journalism and public interest and, and curate, uh, to, uh, serve very specific communities, whether these are geographical communities or whether they're thematic communities. Mm-hmm. You know, you might be very interested in prison reform uh, so that, you know, you go and you read Marshall Project or you might be really interested in global affairs. So you come and read Coda Story, right? And so on. So I think there is a very healthy movement happening there. Uh, but it's still, I mean, it's nothing compared to the kind of money that is being spent in tech. I mean, it's a, it's just like a drop in the ocean. So if there was more money put into public interest journalism to give people a real alter- alternative, right, to somehow replace that, that that whatever create an equivalent modern day equivalent of whatever that the role that local news served i think that would you know that would be incredibly meaningful yeah and it it's a question of of where that money comes from too and and how that money gets there as well right well absolutely and for a long time that money came from a lot of that money came from the platforms themselves mm-hmm. right and then yeah. that raises question well should you be taking money from Google and what, Facebook? What strings are attached to that money? And, and what strings are attached? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, this has been fantastic. I always like to, to finish our conversations with a, a little word game, uh, if you're up for that. Okay. I'll try. I'm terrible at games of all sorts. It's, but- it's not hard. It's called this or that. I'm just going to present you two options, and you tell me what you'd pick or, and okay. why. Sure. Uh, we'll start easy. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Why? Um, I like the taste. Wakes me up in the morning. Yeah, tea is too too soft. You need need the bolder. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I tea has its place in my yeah. life. I'm not okay. completely They're disowning right. tea. Yeah, these are these are false dichotomies. Don't worry. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I guess. Uh, Mastodon or Tumblr? Oh God, neither. <laughs> yes, neither is an option. You can always pick neither. Do neither. do you have a platform out there that you that you think is is worth examining, or is it like yeah, they all have their issues? Oh, I can't face another platform. Yeah, yeah. I feel it's an, it's like last thing I need in my life is another platform. I mean, we're on them, but yeah, that's a necessary evil for you. It's Not like, yeah, yeah, that's right. Fast or slow zombies? Um, let's see. Well, I guess if I'm having coffee, fast zombies. Because mm-hmm. you've got your fueled. Yeah. 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 Good answer. Uh, Heathrow or Gatwick? Heathrow. Yeah. Really? Better food, um, better mm. shops, mm-hmm. better, nicer airport. Yeah. Better transportation. Definitely. I I used to think Gatwick uh, just because it what? was easy to get out of. Uh, but then you spend more than two minutes a year. You're absolutely right. Uh, savory or dessert crepes? Savory. Mm. Do you, any particular kind? Mm, a caviar. Ah, nice. Yeah. Caviar is having a moment right now too. Like I, I see it everywhere. Why did caviar not have a moment? I, but yeah, that's true. It never went away, but I, I feel like I've seen it even more often than, than not. Uh, dogs or cats? Oh, as a proud owner of both, um, I refuse to answer this question. You could say both. Yeah, that is that is there's precedent even for people saying both on the show. So. uh, So, yeah. Do your dogs and cats get along? 
Uh, it, it depends. There are three of them. One dog, two cats. Um, dog and one cat, cat hate each other. Dog and the other cat um, are have warmed up to each other. Mm-hmm. They don't love each other, but they just about... Dog came after cats, which always means, you know, tension. Yeah, if, yeah. If a kitten comes to the dog, they're accepted. And I've I've had three dogs, uh, one of whom loved cats, just was fascinated, thought they were the best thing ever, uh, and the other two just want to chase them. So yeah, kind of depends on the personality yeah. too. It depends. Uh, news or journalism? Mm. Did you just add that? I did. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? Journalism, of course. <laughs> of course. Uh, and then dry or humid? Uh, humid, actually. Mm. Humid. Most people choose dry. That's interesting. Just you don't want you want to don't have to keep applying moisturizer or something. Yeah, and I just yeah, I like um I like kind of subtropical humidity, mm-hmm. heat and humidity. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh well Natalia, thank you so much uh for chatting with me today. I really appreciate it. Uh before we go, let folks know, um remind them one more time where they can go to find your work and what's going on at Coda Story. Sure. It's codastory.com. So please do visit and sign up to our newsletters, read the pieces. There's lots and lots on the website. Um, Always tell us what you think. And if you want to check out the podcast that I mentioned, it's called Undercurrents, Tech Tyrants and Us. And that is actually on Audible. So if you head into your Audible app, you can just look it up. Uh, Undercurrents, Tech Tyrants and Us. And there too, we would love to know what you think. Fantastic. Thanks again, Natalia. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks to our producers, Jen Cutter, Roger Chang, and Anthony Lamos. Thank you for listening to this show and telling your friends about it. You can get an ad-free version of this show with Acast Plus. Click on Access Exclusive Content at awordpodcast.com. We'll have a word with you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.